Hi, everyone. It's Allison McGee, your host. And before we begin, I want you to know that today we'll be talking again about suicide. Today's episode is the final installment of a three-part series on the topic. The first, two weeks ago, was a conversation with writer Rocky Callan, who spoke candidly and openly about her own suicide attempt as a child, her recurring depression, and how she and her family, and by extension their community, have learned to accept and recognize and deal with what, on this show, we're going to call big feelings. The second episode last week began with a voice memo from a listener in Quebec whose two children attempted suicide on two successive days last year, and whose experience brought up experiences with suicide in my own life. Today's episode features a conversation and reflections with a social worker who works with children in trauma, and whose teen and even younger clients frequently express thoughts of suicide. Suicide, especially among young people, is sharply up these days. It's a public health issue, a crisis, and we need to address it. We need to talk about it. In any event, maybe because of the subject matter you want to skip today's episode, or Maybe you don't. Before we continue, I would like to apologize on behalf of my production team because (laughs) they cannot seem to master... uh, anything about how to reduce the echo chamber sound of an interview. And uh, the blame is fully on them, has nothing to do with me. So thank you in advance for putting up with us. Today we are speaking with Devin O'Brien, who may be familiar to some of you from her occasional readings here on Words by Winter. Those readings, however, are an extremely part-time and entirely unpaid side hustle. In her regular life, Devin is a licensed clinical social worker whose work with children in trauma often involves teens and younger children with thoughts of suicide. Devin, welcome to Words by Winter. Thanks for being on our show. Thank you for having me. Devin, can you describe in general what your work is like, who your clients typically are, and in what sorts of situations you find yourself with them? Sure. Um, So I'm a clinical social worker, and my specific role is um, I do in-home therapy with children and families. So I have an identified client who is a child, typically um, a teenager, and I do individual therapy with them, and then I also do a family component where Um, I do a lot of work with their caregivers and sometimes their siblings. And in your work with your clients, how how often do you encounter clients who speak of wanting to die of suicide? Often. I think because I work with kids and because the kids that I work with are typically um, there's a wide range of ages. I spend quite a bit of time talking with kids about um, suicide and with usually with much younger kids about um, death 
that's, you know, something that comes up a lot for kids and, um, it's something that's developmentally typical. Um, and I think in my work, a lot of what I spend, a lot of what I spend doing all the time, I'm spending my time with the kids trying to kind of figure out whether or not they want to die or if they're, they want bad feelings to go away and that their understanding of the finality of death isn't quite there yet. Um, and those are, that's a distinction that's pretty important. You surprised me just now when you said that death frequently comes up with not just teens, but very young children. I think with very young kids, they have likely heard about death, whether that means a family member has died or a pet has died, um, or and or they kind of have the same human questions that we all have of what happens once our life is over. Um, and that's, that's the one that I think is uh, very typical, especially for little kids, is just trying to figure out what all of this is and what life is and what happens when life no longer is. Um, Whereas with older, you know, a lot of my work is with middle school age through 18. And so with those kids, typically there's a better understanding, um, whether that's because of experiences they've been through or witnessed. Um, And those conversations are typically more around, um, you know, whether they've witnessed someone die or someone in their life has passed away, just feelings of grief and sadness or their experience of depression um, and themselves, you know, there's either a curiosity about death or the desire to die. And if one of your clients expresses to you a wish to die, what is the protocol? I'm assuming that there is one. And second, what is happening inside you as a person who cares deeply for this child as you listen to them talk about wanting to die? It's a good question, and I think that it changes slightly depending on who I'm with, Um, and I can get more into that, but I think when it comes to talking about suicide and death, the lines between personal and professional can blur a bit. I think it's important for me to show a little bit of what I'm feeling inside, which is typically what any human would feel when they're listening to someone that they deeply care about express a feeling like suicidality. Um, And that is sadness and anxiety and the desire to protect that person. And I think my hope in those moments is that I show enough of that sadness and anxiety and that empathy that the person I'm talking to can understand that I care for them and that I take this seriously, but not show too much of it that it makes them shut down. Um, Because that conversation is obviously incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then externally, like you mentioned, there is obviously a protocol that I follow where, um, you know, I, I ask a series of questions and I think it's, it it really depends on kind of what environment, um, 
the person is in, but I think what we see uh, in the media and in movies a lot of the times is like this very sterile checklist of questions that a psychiatrist or a therapist will ask a person who is who has expressed suicidality. Um, and in my experience, and because I'm not in a super clinical hospital setting, um, it's more of a conversation and it's a conversation where I'm just gathering information, um, which is important. And I think the nuance of me working with kids means that, again, I'm trying to decipher whether or not there's a curiosity about death and thoughts about dying that are more detached from the actual person, or if it's them actually wanting to harm or kill themselves. Um, and that's an important distinction, but the questions generally are around, you know, how long have you been feeling this way? Um, what does it mean to you? What does dying mean to you? Um, do you have uh, a way that you would do it? Do you have the means to do it? Just some of those basic questions that we hear about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that they are, again, comfortable in that conversation so that I am not um, so that they're not shutting down, that they feel like it's okay to express these things. That seems like the ultimate goal, doesn't it? To keep them talking, to keep them processing these feelings that must be so overwhelming, not only for them, but also for you, the one hearing them expressed. What are your goals for that particular session? And if your clients are expressing thoughts of suicide, uh, how do you follow up with that? How soon and in what way? So in my specific job, there's a lot of flexibility around how often I'm meeting with a client, um, which I know is a privilege because in a lot of other um, social work or clinical roles, it is kind of, uh, you're just given that 50-minute session. Um, and that isn't the case for me. Usually I'm meeting with families multiple times a week for anywhere from 15 minutes on the phone to three hour Zoom calls. Um, so I, I do make sure that I am providing this client and this family with the time that they need because you're right in that it, these conversations can, you know, they can be lengthy and at the same time, they can be very short, both of which give me more information about how I need to be supporting this person and this family. Um, I think because I work with children, there tends to be more of, well, I don't, I'm not quite sure. I, I guess this is true. There tends to be a little bit more protection for kids when it comes to this kind of thing, because they have immediate caregivers and people who are physically present with them more so than, um, for example, somebody be in, their 20s who lives alone. Um, so in that sense, it, it tends to be follow-up conversations with their parents or caregivers, um, their, you know, any, any, and then any other provider that um, it would be helpful that they have this information so that they can also follow up with them, um, whether that's a psychiatrist or another clinician that works with them um, in a clinical role. That is uh, rather beautiful to me. In my mind, I'm getting an image of 
a sort of interwoven cloud of support around this child who has expressed the desire to die, and it's comforting to me. One common thread in my own experience with suicide is that as the one who loves someone who wants to die, I've always felt so alone that I had no one to turn to. And this feels like a a profoundly important question to me. As a caregiver yourself, where do you turn for solace and support and assuring up of your own potential emotional raggedness in the face of suicidality and someone you deeply care about? Maybe what I'm trying to say is that suicide doesn't just happen and isn't just happening in the case of suicidal ideation for the person who uh, has expressed thoughts of wanting to die. You know, where do I go for the best treatment or support for my child? How do I get through this? And I, I often wonder about what parents kind of think of me and my role as a clinician in those moments. And I, I think the message that is important for me to give and I hope gets across when I'm in situations like this um, with families is that um, for me, it's not just I turn off my Zoom at the end of the day and I'm not thinking about that family anymore. The nature of the work is that when I turn off my Zoom, I'm typically spending quite a bit of time thinking about the families that I've um, supported throughout the day. And so you're right that um, suicide and any kind of crisis situation that I find myself in with the family also impacts me in a lot of ways. And I think that one thing that I do, um, and this is pretty basic, is that I lean on my supervisor and my coworkers for support. Um, And it's incredibly helpful because they've all been in similar situations and Um, I think also the nature of the work I do means that I get to see the fullness of my clients. Somebody's life isn't all crisis all the time. I think kids and families go through periods where that is the case, but there's always more. And I think focusing on, I think that that's something that I, I focus on a lot is focusing on kind of what I can do in the moment to support them and standing firm in that they will move through this and come out on the other side with hopefully um, skills that we've learned along the way that help them feel supported and cared for. I love that thought that we are more. We're more than our depression. We're more than our thoughts of suicide. We are also our moments of lightness and laughter, love and redemption. We're the sum of everything we feel and have felt. It's true of everyone in the world, those we love who are alive and those we love who aren't. Even if they ended their own lives, they were still so much more than that ending moment. Devin, I'm interested in knowing whether your training and work as a social worker uh, who witnesses so much pain in others and helps them through it, has given you any coping skills for yourself? You know, as an empath, as someone whose work is 
uh, truly demanding, what are some of the ways that you shore yourself up? Um, I think the things that I do to recenter myself um, have shifted in some ways because of COVID. You know, I can't meet a friend for dinner and a drink after work, um, but I can do things that kind of break up my day and give me a little bit of space to uh, breathe and think. And one of those things is going for walks. I know before COVID, I would usually drive home back to my apartment and I would just kind of sit in my car for 20 minutes and, and allow myself to feel those big feelings that came up throughout the day. And now I do that through going for walks and just, you know, instead of trying to push out those big feelings of anxiety and sadness and worry for those families, I just let myself feel those things because they're important feelings and they are telling me, they're giving me messages that I care about these families and I want to see them through this in a way that is helpful for them. Um, so if I can feel those big feelings and kind of get that out of my systems so that I can, you know, be back in my space with my partner and be able to kind of go through the normal everyday responsibilities, um, then I feel a lot better. Feel the big feelings. It all revolves around that, doesn't it? When I was younger and coping with the second big suicide of my life, I had no real coping mechanisms. Most things I did were designed, were designed to avoid the feelings that felt as if they were swamping me and destroying me. Most of the things I did were designed to not process those feelings. It wasn't healthy. It delayed my growth. And the idea of a network of support surrounding someone everyone acknowledging these big feelings and how to process them has been a theme of this three-part series. From our conversation with Rocky Callan to my own experiences in learning to absorb the suicide in my life and become a deeper and bigger person as a result, to Devin O'Brien and how she supports both the children she works with and herself through their big feelings. This right there, feeling the big feelings, understanding that we can, we will, make our way through them, feels like the essential underpinning of how we as human beings can understand and cope and help others with thoughts of suicide. For today's poem, I am reaching back to our very first episode of Words by Winter. This poem feels like the perfect one both for that episode and also for today. Suicide Hotline Hold Music by Jesse Randall We play cheerful music on the Suicide Hotline. Cheerful, but not too cheerful. Nothing with lyrics. Sometimes when I finally talk to them, they're crying and sometimes they keep crying. I fight the urge to tell them jokes. Sometimes they get on my nerves. Sometimes I ask them to see things from my point of view. They gulp, they try. Even in crisis, they are polite. I ask them where it hurts. They always have an answer. Here's what they don't know. 
When I play the music, I'm still on the line. I listen to them breathing. If their breathing slows, I keep playing the hold music. I'm like a DJ and I'm like a doctor. I adjust the music with care. I fine-tune, giving them what they need at just that moment. I'll ask them to hold and play the music again. I have a button I can press that makes the music skip. The same sound repeats for 20 seconds. When I get back on the line with them, they never fail to let me know about the problem. They're helpful. Thank you, I say. We'll fix that for next time. It reminds them they are part of the world. Then they tell me things, sometimes haltingly, sometimes in one big rush. How they feel, how bad it is. I can keep them on the line for hours. The main thing is to keep them on the line. So here we are. Thank you, Devin O'Brien and Rocky Callen, for being on the show for these episodes. Deep thanks, deep, deep thanks to Olivier, who prompted the idea for this series, and who so courageously opened his heart to us in speaking of his children's suicide attempts. Working on these three episodes has taken me a long time. It's been a lot of hard and also a lot of cathartic. When I first listened to Olivier's quiet voice memo, his almost methodical description of what he and his family went through in those two days and afterward of his children's suicide attempts and what they continue to go through, how they are coming through it, my heart clenched, my stomach turned icy. Every parent's greatest fear is losing your child. And when someone else's child is in danger, you superimpose your own child onto theirs. It is impossible, at least for me, not to feel their panic and grief, even if you can't do anything about it, even if it's something that's already happened, another parent's pain is yours. Other people's loss and sorrow is yours. That's what it is to be human. No one, no matter what they're experiencing, is alone in it, even if they think they are, even if you think you are. The whole point of our show, Words by Winter, is just that, that no matter what we're going through, we aren't alone. Because here's the thing, if the pain of other people is all our pain, then the hope and redemption of other people belongs to us all too. Knowing that others have come through the unimaginable, have somehow managed to absorb it into their lives and keep moving, is a huge, silent, constant comfort to me. What talking with Olivier, hearing his thoughts and his family's experiences, along with Rocky Callan and Devin O'Brien's, what they've shown me again is that suicide and thoughts of it are not uncommon. Nor are they things to hide or pretend don't exist. So many feelings that overwhelm us, that feel impossible, are lessened when we open up about them, when we talk about them. So let's do that. Let's talk about them. Let's keep on talking about them. Let's let the light shine down.
is it for today's show, my friends. That's it for our three-part series on suicide. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please spread the word by sending the link or links to someone else who might, and give us a good rating if you're so inclined, especially on Apple Music. I guess that's the most important one. Original theme music for our show is by Dylan Parisi. Additional music by Kelly Krebs. Jesse Randall's beautiful poem, Suicide Hotline Hold Music, is read with kind permission of Red Hen Press. Words by Winter is created, hosted, everything by me, writer Allison McGee. Tell me what you're going through. I will go in search of a poem to help us all through, the way poems have been helping me since I was a little girl. You can send me a voice memo via email to wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com or drop me a line at the same address, which again is wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com. For more info, go to alisonmcgee.com. Words by Winter. Conversations, reflections, and poems about the passages of life. Because it is rough out there, and we have to, and we can, help each other through. <laughs>